Do you want to stay more focused on the right goals in your life or even just figure out what the right goals are for you? Do you want clarity? Do you want better work-life balance? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Success Through Failure. Welcome to the Success Through Failure podcast, the show that reveals failure as your path to success. You'll listen to intriguing interviews with some of the most successful people on the planet and learn how their failures became a launchpad for success and how yours can too. Here's your host, former Division I All-American wrestler, former Division I head coach, speaker, and personal coach, Jim Harshaw. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. Today, I bring you Derek Fitzgerald. Do you feel out of balance in your life, like your family and your work are your priorities, but you don't have enough time in the day, so you're shortchanging them both? Not to mention wanting to work out more or or do more of the things that you love. Are you easily distracted and you want to be able to stay more focused so that you can lock in on the most important things that you know you should be doing? You want to be more consistent so you can achieve those goals that always seem just out of reach. Or maybe you feel like you just lack the motivation that it takes to get there. Or maybe you're just not clear on what the right first step actually is. Like every time you're about to take action, you doubt whether or not it's the right action or the right goal. I know the feeling. I've got a wife and four kids, I have a job, a rental property, this podcast, not to mention the inevitable challenges that just come up with life, like you know, illness and struggling family members or car trouble. I've got a lot going on. But when I was a Division I All-American athlete, I was completely locked in. I was focused. I was balanced. And I knew exactly what I wanted and the steps that I had to take to get it. But when I got into the real world, things got a lot more complex. There's just a lot more time demands. Like everything seems to be a priority. How are you supposed to figure out what's the right next step for you? Well, I've developed a system that helps you do just that. Find the balance, the clarity, the focus that you're looking for so you can take your life to the next level. So you can start seeing the dreams that are in your mind as realistic goals and have a plan to achieve them. I've opened a few spots on my calendar for free 30-minute strategy calls so you can take that first step toward the life that you've always dreamed about. Just one simple step, one small commitment that will give you huge results, a simple phone call that will leave you with a plan. If you want this life, if you want to truly have a breakthrough, claim one of the few spots open on my calendar and I'll share with you the formula that has had people who I work with saying things like one of my recent coaching clients, Frank, who said, my only regret is that I didn't do this 20 years ago. Or like Isaac, who said, I love this version of myself the best and I'll do anything to keep it going. I've got dozens more quotes like that. If you want to feel the same way, go to jimharshawjr.com slash apply. That's jimharshawjr.com slash apply. Derek is a survivor of cancer, heart failure, and ultimately a heart transplant. After receiving his life-saving transplant in 2011, Derek entered the world of endurance sports. I guess that's right. What, what you do as soon as you get a, a heart transplant. And, uh, and he became dedicated to helping others going through their own healthcare journeys. In 2000 or since 2011, Derek has upheld his life's mission to honor his donor's gift. He's completed over 90 endurance events, including a coast-to-coast bike ride and multiple Ironman races, including the prestigious World Championship in Kona, Hawaii. 
He's the only cancer survivor and heart transplant recipient to ever complete a full Ironman distance race. For the listener, if you don't have time to listen to the entire episode or if you hear something you like but you don't have a chance to write it down, make sure you grab your free copy of the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Man, you uh, you and I were connected through a mutual friend, Charlie the Spaniard Brenneman, who I've had on the podcast here a couple times before. And man, what an incredible, incredible story. So let's just start with this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and um, kind of where you grew up and the short version of how you got from there to kind of where we want to start with your story. Well, sure. I grew up in Pennsylvania in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So opposite side of the state uh, from you. Uh, and uh, it was, I grew up in a, a probably a more of a blue collar neighborhood, lots of cornfields and baseball fields. And pretty much as far as I was concerned, a picture perfect childhood, uh, nothing weird in my health history at that point that would lead me to believe or give me a kind of, any kind of indication of what I was going to go through later in life. I, Played on the soccer team. I played on several soccer teams growing up through high school. Then uh, was my my dad was a music teacher, so I was in the band and I was in the marching band. So pretty much, uh, you know, your your typical, you know, I would probably say well-rounded dork in high school. Went from uh, state champ soccer to state champ marching band, and so had a, a wow. real ver a, a real fortunate childhood to, to be in, in the places that I was uh, and have the experiences that I had. I, uh, I traveled the country a little bit when I was in my teens, uh, into my early 20s with basically a professional marching band, which is uh, Drum and Bugle Corps. So I, I was on a tour bus competing against other kids my age uh, all over North America. And uh, I went to college. I, I I followed a girl out to, uh, to Indiana University of Pennsylvania. She was going there for teaching. I wanted to be a filmmaker and found out after that I was, after I was accepted, I found out that they didn't have a film program. So <laughs> I made the best of it as I could and uh, went into television production, couldn't make a living out of college doing TV production or film production. So I started programming. And uh, once I started programming, I got I got a job at a pharmaceutical company and that pharma company quickly merged with another pharma company as pharma companies tend to do. And it wiped out my division and I had to start over again. I started a company out of that loss of a job. And then, you know, it's, it, I got to the point where I wasn't feeling that great. I was a workaholic. I would work from, you know, the wee hours of the morning to the wee hours of the night every day. And I thought that the grind of work and turning 30 was just, I could expect that I was getting older and that stuff was going to start falling off or I would start to feel worse or whatever. And that's what I kind of attributed my, my health, you know, things that were going wrong at the time. And so I, I thought that's all that was, but little did I know um, that I'd soon find out that. I had some some real hurdles to to overcome. Yeah, so at that point, you know, you're kind of living, you know, I guess a fairly typical life, right? You go to college, you come out, you 
go through a few jobs and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then, and then you get some news, right? You're, you're starting to you know, feel like maybe your body's slowing down, that kind of thing. But you get some terrible news. Tell us about that. So I had uh, an issue on a road trip. I was traveling for work and I had stopped. Excuse me. It was a long road trip. So I stopped halfway at some family or with some family. I spent the night there. And, and while I was there, I, I had an issue where my stomach was extremely upset Um ended up being uh, really gross and, and uh, I don't know how graphic you want to want me to get <laughs> on your your show here but, but basically I, I started bleeding during a bowel movement and I, I tried to ignore it for as long as I could uh, it went away and then it came back two weeks later and then it went away and it came back two weeks later and finally I um, I was married at the time <clears throat> and my wife, Gave me that look like, quit being an idiot. Go have it checked out. It's not normal. And she was right. It wasn't normal. They, I, I, I went to the doctor, and they couldn't figure out what it was. I was overweight. I had completely neglected my body, my health, uh, any kind of physical conditioning that I once had. And I spent three months of them doing every exam and poke and prod of them sticking probes up and down as far as they could reach until they said, well, listen, we're going we're gonna to chalk this off as something that's just really weird. And, and this is just something that you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life. Every two weeks, you're going to go to the bathroom, you're going to bleed. That's a little unsettling, not having an answer. Right, exactly. So they said, well, you know what? There was, there was one shadow in your abdomen that we don't know what it is. The likelihood of it being cancer or anything like that is extremely low um, because it's there's only one type of cancer that you get in that area that would present itself that way. And the likelihood of that being what you have is like 2%. So what we'd like to do just to, you know, just to cross off this box before we let you go is we're going to do an exploratory surgery. We're going to open you up a little bit. We're going to take a look around where that shadow was and we're just going to make sure that everything's okay. And so they did. I go in for my surgery. They put me under and the next thing I know, they're bringing me up out of sedation in the middle of the surgery with these these surgeons' faces leaning down over my head wow. saying, Mr. Fitzgerald, we found something we weren't expecting. We found something we'd like to – we'd like your permission to remove it right now. Oh, my goodness. And you know, I was, I was as high as a kite at the time. I was feeling no pain. I was like, sure, man. Yeah, you know, take it. <laughs> so – I wake up from the surgery. I'm in recovery. Um, my family is has, is has made a U shape around the foot of my bed. There's new doctors with them, and they said, "Derek, we're sorry to tell you, but we removed a tumor the size of a grapefruit from your intestines. We also removed two feet of intestine on on either side of that grapefruit. We sewed you back up, and." Uh, we had the the tumor biopsied. It came back as positive for lymphoma. You've you've got cancer, and uh, my goodness, yeah, it, it was uh, pretty heavy. So then, what you have to you, you start the the process of of getting this treated, and, and you're married at the time. Any kids? No kids. No. Okay. So, so what's the next step? 
<clears throat> well, I would say no kids, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. We had been trying to, to uh, have kids and get pregnant for quite some time. It just hadn't panned out. So I, I, the next step was actually just becoming strong enough to withstand chemotherapy. So I went to rehabilitation. They had sliced me from just below my sternum to just below my belt line. Uh, everything was severed, all the abdominals. So I had to learn to walk again. And, uh, you know, I, wow. I spent a good three months with, uh, with people that were 30 or 40 years my senior. And we watched our daytime uh, game shows and we, <laughs> we did our rehabilitation. And I, I, I did my balance exercises and walking exercises. And ultimately, I, I graduated from that uh, rehabilitation to chemotherapy and uh, <clears throat> went through uh, five months of chemo. They had uh, chemo, uh, as you're probably aware, is just toxins that they flood your system with. Yeah. That are, they, they try their best to target the cancer itself, but it's, it's toxic material. Sometimes it gets out and, you know, uh, it, it affects you as well, the person, so the, the patient receiving the treatment, and, and it certainly did me. You talked about, it, actually, sorry to interrupt, but you're in your TEDx talk, you spoke about this this analogy that the doctor used of, if you could use that with us, that would be great if you could explain that too, of, of an airplane flying at altitude oh, and, yeah. and kind of how they, how they handle that. So basically, uh, that first day in chemo, now I'd been interviewing uh, oncologists uh, at, with my work, with my job. And, you know, I had no prior experience uh, with anyone in my family having it. So no personal, nothing that had touched me or my family. And so I sat down with this oncologist the very first day and he said, so what do you understand about chemotherapy? And I said, well, you know, I've got a, a pretty good understanding of, you know, the mechanics of it, but I've never been in this situation. And he said, well, all right, so picture yourself as an airplane flying high in the sky. I said, oh, that sounds nice. He said, now picture your airplane's on fire. I said, oh, wow, okay, so, right. He said, now that fire is your cancer, and what we're going to do with the chemotherapy regimen that we're going to put you through is that, that chemo, those toxins, are going to put your plane into a medically controlled nosedive. And hopefully through the sheer force and the velocity of hurtling towards the earth, it'll put all the flames out. And it's my job as your oncologist to be the pilot, to know when to pull back on the stick just before your plane crashes into the ground wow. and take you, take you back up to a cruising altitude. And at, at which point we'll dust you off. We'll check you out. If we got all the flames out, if we got all the cancer, then phenomenal. If not, we'll make sure you're okay. And then we'll do that same thing again and again and again. And then until we either have all the cancer and we've gotten rid of all the cancer or your body is to the point where it can no longer sustain the toxicity. Jeez. So, so that was my, uh, it was, it put it in very easy to understand terms that, that, uh, I, I said, all right, well, crap, let's, let's do this. So, so you go through the chemotherapy and you get, uh, you get cleared, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, after five months of chemo, I'm declared in remission and I, you know, wipe the, wipe my brow and go, whew, you know, I dodged that bullet. I just want to get back to my normal life. And within within three months, I had started to, I was going back to work 
my business had expanded. We were no longer dealing with oncology drugs, but we were going around and, and working with cardiovascular drugs uh, and cardiovascular treatment. And I was going around interviewing all these top docs in the cardiovascular space. And within three months, I start having problems breathing and I start having dizzy spells. And I didn't know what it was. So at first I go into the to the emergency room and late at night and, and I'm, I'm diagnosed with, with pneumonia and they treat me for pneumonia, but I don't get any better. And then I go back in and they think, well, maybe it's pleurisy. Maybe you've got fluid in your lungs. In the meantime, I keep having these dizzy spells where I'm dizzy for 30 seconds at a time. I'm getting fatigued uh, and everything's feeling heavy and it's harder to breathe. And I'm having all this, congestion and I'm coughing, but then I'd go about my daily, my life. And so they treat me for pleurisy that doesn't do anything. And so finally, after several months of going back for late night visits to the ER thinking, well, something's wrong. I get a doctor that sits by my bedside and says, well, Derek, I know you've had a rough year with the cancer and the chemotherapy, but I'm afraid I've got some more bad news. You're in heart failure. And he says, uh, one of the drugs in your chemo cocktail has damaged your heart. Wow. So if you have anybody that you want to call, now's probably a good time. So this was essentially a death sentence or close to it? Not a death sentence, but life as I expected it in front of me was not going to be the same. Yeah. That uh, whatever life expectancy I thought I would have uh, was no longer... Uh, my insurance company and my life insurance policy companies found ways to drop me immediately. Wow. Uh, and uh, it was basically he described it as I was on the verge of of needing a heart transplant, but that through diet and medications and exercise, he was hoping to bring my heart function back up to uh, – not necessarily, I wouldn't say sustainable range, but just something where I wouldn't feel so many negative side effects as I had been feeling. And those those thirty second bouts of fatigue and dizziness were starting to increase. So it was from thirty seconds to a minute, and over a period of, of time, over a period of seven years, I went that thirty seconds to a minute became an hour, became all day long, became. So it got to the point where I was sleeping for 23 hours a day. I was propped up in bed. Um, if I lied down flat, my heart was no longer strong enough to pump the fluids out of my lungs. So I would have literally drowned in my own bodily fluids wow. if I lied down flat. So then what? So you get this this news that your life, as you know it, will be changed forever. And what were your options? The options were just to keep going. And, and, uh, we tried to change my diet. Um, my diet changed a little bit, but I, I ate so little as it was. Uh, I, I say little, it wasn't that I was eating a little bit of food. I was eating a lot of food. It just was a very narrow diet that I was already on. I, I rarely found time to take care of the, of myself and the food that I was eating. So I'd be working all day, coming home at night, stopping off at a drive-thru, picking up a triple cheeseburger, chocolate shake, 
large fries, large soda, not the best thing in the world for me by any means. And, uh, I would try to exercise, but I was having such a hard time exerting at any level that I wasn't able to, to get the benefit of that. Right. Then, geez. I mean, you get to the point where you're propped up in bed and, and sleeping almost all day. Um, right. so is that when the, the conversation of a heart transplant took place? And, and is that when that came about? I was declared in remission from cancer in 2004. And then, and then in 2010, they said, well, listen, I, I went in to see my cardiologist and he said, listen, we were hoping that diet and medications and exercise were going to improve your heart function. They haven't. Your heart has gotten worse. It's time. And this was August of 2010. They put me on the heart transplant waiting list. So, and when uh, did that, when did you end up getting the transplant? I got it four months later, January of 2011. And that's obviously a, a massively, I mean, invasive is not even the, the right word I can imagine to describe that. But, but that experience had to have been, um, just, just probably scary. And, and, uh, you know, I'm sure the, the rehab from that was pretty tremendous. It's terrifying. And it's, it's one of those things where all I wanted was a shot. I mean, when I was just leading up to the transplant, I was, like I said, I was sleeping 23 hours a day. Uh, I could no longer do anything other than sit in bed. Everything that I thought I was, everything that I thought that I liked to do that made me who I was had been taken away. And I knew that I either wanted to get a transplant or I wanted to die. And I was hoping that I would survive, but I knew that staying where I was wasn't possible. It wasn't a life. So, yeah, I got the transplant, and I was just thankful. Uh, I was grateful for the opportunity uh, to, to stay alive. And, uh, and so the recovery process, the, the, the surgery itself is the physical equivalent of being hit by a Mack truck. Your sternum is cracked open, you know, your whole chest. They, I told you before that my cancer surgery had cut me open from just below my sternum to just below my waistline. Well, this goes just to the, from the base of your neck down to just below your sternum. So essentially I've been cut from the base of my neck to, you know, below my waistline. And right. again, the whole month of January of 2011, I was so fit, I was so weak. I had lost a lot of weight leading up to the transplant. I'd gone from over 200 pounds in the months leading up to the transplant to I was 155 pounds at transplant. And in the three months following transplant, I atrophied and was 128 pounds. Wow. So I was skin and bone. Um, and unless someone pulled me up out of bed, I couldn't lift my head three inches off of a pillow. So at this uh, moment, you know, and, and I read the bio to everybody, so we all know that, you know, somehow you go from there to Iron Man. Yeah. I mean, was there, and, and you weren't even, you know, you weren't an athlete really prior to this other than high school. You weren't training or competing or running in races or anything prior to this. No, no. I was pushing 40 when I got the transplant, and the last time I had been active was in high school. So with the heart came a level of gratitude to be alive. And, and I knew I wanted to do everything I could to honor the experience and honor this, this stranger who had saved my life and given their heart to me. So I was out of the hospital within seven days. Usually that's a much longer. Holy cow. Uh, seven days. Seven days out of the hospital, back home recovering on my own. Three months after the transplant, they let me get into a car 
and get to uh, cardiac rehabilitation, where I went from the old man hunched over walk to lifting myself up and walking what where you probably couldn't tell that I had been through anything, uh, to actually being able to jog, a very, very slow jog. At eight months post-heart transplant, I did my very first 5K run. Wow. And I was just thankful to be alive. And I and I would get out there and I would jog slowly and I'd, I'd work through and I'd do my intervals. You know, I started out walking for nine minutes and 55 seconds and walking for five, uh, running for five seconds. And then I'd walk for nine minutes and 55 seconds and then I'd jog for five seconds. And then I slowly improved that to the point where I could do a slow jog of a 5K. Two months after that first 5K, I did my first half marathon. And I thought, well, this is fantastic. I've never done this before. Let's see if I can swim and bike and start with triathlon. So I I went back to team and training where I'd been raising money for people with cancer and helping improve treatments there. So I asked them, well, what about triathlon? So in January of 2012, a year after my heart transplant, I learned to swim and uh, I bought myself a bicycle. By April of 2012, I did my very first Olympic distance triathlon. A month later, I did my first half Ironman. What do you think lit that fire? I mean, obviously, you know, this this new lease on life, but I mean, why keep going, right? You ran the 5K, you're now back to functioning probably better than you, you know, at least, you know, athletically better than you were prior to that. You know, you said you were overweight and sedentary. Now you, now you ran a 5K. Why keep going? It's a good question. I think that uh, one of the things was I just couldn't believe how good I felt physically and in turn what that was doing for me emotionally and mentally. And just the, the, the knowledge that somebody out there gave me their heart as they were dying, said, okay. Their family said, okay. And for me, did you get I, to, I, did you get to know their family or meet the family? No, not at all. I've, I've written to them. I know that they received my letter, wow. but they have not chosen to respond. So I, at this point, I don't know who my family uh, is. But what I do know is that they have been heroically compassionate and generous at one of the worst times in their lives. And that says a lot about those people. So that's enough for me. But the fact of the matter is, is that every heartbeat that I have now is someone else's. And while insurance can pay for the surgery, it doesn't mean that I've earned the gift. And it's my job that I've taken on to earn the gift. Derek, what, what would you say to your old self? Basically us, right? Us sitting here listening to you, me getting to talk to you, and then the listener listening wherever they're at. What would you say to your old self who, you know, life was fine, right? Um, yeah. You know, you were kind of going through the world, taking life for granted, probably, like all of us. Sure. And you hadn't had this crucible experience that forced you to stare death in the face like most of us have right. not. And you know, I guess what I'm getting at is, do we need that crucible experience to to be grateful and, and really to be grateful at a level that you're grateful? Because it's one thing to be grateful, but my goodness, you are grateful for just being able to do any, anything, right? Just to, just to have Absolutely. a heartbeat. What would you say to your old self? You know what? I, I was the prototypical workaholic. And 
You're right. I mean, I used to have this motto that I was really proud of, which was, I'm going to work hard enough, long enough to make enough money to do all the things in life that money can't buy. I thought it was clever. I thought I was unique. I wasn't. I was putting off life in the the crazy pursuit of short-term dollars that I thought was going to make my life better. And then I died a couple times. I didn't huh. realize. I mean, it took me a lot to realize that li- life is a gift that's not promised. And no one is promised tomorrow. And so I, I learned it the hard way. I hope that people can hear my story and take it to heart, no pun intended, that life is precious and life is finite. And when you put things off for a rainy day or when you think you're more financially settled or you've got a level of success that you've achieved that you're comfortable with, it just doesn't, life doesn't work that way. So I think that, uh, you know, people come up to me and they ask me, so Derek, I mean, you've been through all this stuff and how does it feel to know that you could go at any time? And I'd say, you know what? I don't know. How does it feel for you? Because (laughs) good point. Nobody's promised tomorrow. You're telling me that there's not a shot in in hell that you, you, you won't get cut off on the freeway tomorrow and and flip your car. I mean, it's a horrible thought, but nobody's promised tomorrow. It's it's not real me. It's real. It's, it's life. So my, my question to them is, what are you going to do with today? What are you going to do with the life you have right at this moment? And how are you living it to make the most of it? How are you living it to be grateful that you, with what you have for what you have? For me, I live my life where I, when I put my head on the pillow at night and I close my eyes, I am confident that I've gotten every possible thing out of that day that I possibly can. And if I happen to open my eyes tomorrow, I'm going to do the same thing. And for me, that strings together enough of those days that I have a fantastic life. I mean, I, I, I told you I was married at one time. I got divorced uh, after my transplant, went through a period of time where I was I was dating. But I've I found a person, a partner in everything in my life, and she's phenomenal, and, and, and we're married. I told you at one time that uh, my first wife and I had been trying to have kids for quite some time. We tried for about 12 years unsuccessfully, and then before we got divorced, but you know, we had a, she got pregnant. We had a kid. So now I'm going to be nine years out from a transplant in January, uh, this coming January. I've got a five-year-old daughter, and she's the greatest thing in the world and you know, jumps on my back and gives me great big hugs and calls me daddy, and, and it has added to my life beyond exponentially in ways that I would have never imagined possible. And I'm just thankful for all of it. It's interesting what gratitude can do for us. I imagine it it reduces your fear of commitment and just your fear in general at some level, uh, because you know, again, at some level that you've already won. You've won twice. You're living, you know, really like all of us at some level too, are, are living on borrowed time. But I've recently made a commitment. I quit my job at a nice, comfortable, well-paying job that was really enjoyable. But I knew there was more. I knew there was something else that I wanted to do in another role that I wanted to serve in this world. And that is that is this. That is this podcast and my coaching and speaking and workshops that I do. But I was able to make that commitment and face that fear of doing that because I've got four young kids and a mortgage, two mortgages really. And that you know, I was able to face that fear in large part because of gratitude, right? I felt just every day I feel just eternally grateful and I really work on that. I don't just kind of 
say it's a good thing to do but and not do it. I, I write it down. I think about it. I speak the words out loud and I live with gratitude and it really helps me face fears and make commitments. Do you feel like it's the same with you? I mean, is it, is it the gratitude and do you feel like you have less fear of making big commitments and taking big steps and, and doing things that you may not have otherwise done? Perspective is a wonderful thing, I think. And, and yes, it's, it's something that, that I do agree with you there. And I know that it took a lot of courage for you to step outside of the track that you were on and try something completely different. But that was more rewarding. And for me, I have the perspective of the worst case scenario. I've been there and I survived it, but it it affords me a perspective of, you know what, this is, maybe it makes less money. Maybe maybe it makes a lot less money. Maybe it makes more money, but to truly be happy in what I'm doing and, and love what I'm doing, that's going to make a better life for me regardless. So uh, I'm going to do the things that make me happy as a human being. It's going to provide for my family, but more money and more money on top of that does not make happiness. You have lived an inspiring life, right? That's why we're having this conversation right now. You have gone from not even be able to being able to barely hold yourself up in bed, you know, sleeping 23 hours a day and barely, you know, after the surgery, you know, not even really being able to crawl across the room. Now you're doing world-class events and living this inspiring life. Have you failed, right? Can you tell us about a time where you failed, a time where you failed and maybe felt as a result, this hopelessness or this overwhelming self-doubt that comes from that and how you were able to work through that? There's always self-doubt. But at the same time, I'm, I'm stubborn and I, I've got, you know, my last name is Fitzgerald. I'm about as Irish as you come and, and, and stubborn is, is something that I'm called a lot, both good and bad. Um, <laughs> I have a, I subscribe to a, a train of thought that maybe you're familiar with. A lot of people are probably familiar with, but I have a hard time seeing setbacks as failure. When, when something comes up as a failure, as long as I learn from it, I'm moving forward. I can adjust. I can adapt. I can try something different. I can learn from each setback. The only time I, I consider myself as a failure is when I stop trying. So when the company that was employing me folded into another company, became another company, wiped out my division, sure, that's a, a moment that could be could send anybody scurrying to you know their bed to pull up the, the sheet to their neck and 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 tremble about what their life looks like the next day. For me, I, I use that as an opportunity to start a new business. I go I go into races. I've finished six full Ironmans, but I've entered eight at this point, nine. So I, I've failed. I've I've DNF'd in races. But each one is a learning opportunity. It's it's an opportunity for me to figure out how do I get better than where I am? How do I never feel this again? And let's do that. I'm always striving for trying to figure out how I get to be better than I was the day before. And that's what I do. And that's the key is to be mindful that failure is a step. It's a step on the path to success. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn, to do something different, or to go back and try the same thing again with some different tactics or different strategy. 
But that's the key, right? And that's the whole purpose of this podcast is to say, wait a second, this failure or whatever we want to call it, whatever term we want to use is an opportunity for me. It's a, it's a step on the path to success and it's normal. And we've all felt that we've all experienced it. So thanks for sharing that perspective, Derek. Of course. For the listener who likes to walk away with action items, let's, let's start with this first. Let's, let me ask you about a habit. What habit do you feel that you have used or done, executed on consistently over the years that you really feel has helped you achieve success? Is there something that you do or have done on a regular basis that helps you stay on track and you feel has really helped you uh, rise above? Well, for one thing, practicing gratitude, practicing humility is something that, that I do every day. It's great to feel that you've got all this experience and you can tell anybody how to do anything. I am smart enough to know that I, I don't know everything. And so what I always try to do is surround myself with positive people that can help me get to the goal, get to reach the next opportunity that I'm looking to, to get to. And, and so if you're the top hotshot in your job, then that's phenomenal. But you always have to have the mindset of continual learning. If you find yourself sitting around a, a group of people that are bitching a lot and they're not necessarily providing solutions, well, maybe you need to be identifying those people in your workplace or maybe in other workplaces that you're familiar with that you, that you look up to. Maybe they've been through something similar and gotten to the other side of it. And just ask them if you can take them out to, for a coffee, buy them coffee, and pick their brain for a little bit. And then the other thing is, is that I get a lot of people trying to tell me about being able to see the forest for the trees and that sometimes you can get so caught up in the day-to-day -day work that you, you lose track of the big picture. And I'm really – I try to be the exact opposite of that. Uh, I do map out my path to my objective. But once I've mapped that out, I lose myself in the work. And I, I'm relentless in rolling up my sleeves and getting the job done. It doesn't matter if I think it's perfect. There's always room for improvement. And so I just do it again and again and again. Yeah, focus on that process, right? You know, start with the end in mind, right? Is something we've heard yeah. many times from as, Stephen Covey. As, as uh, Philly is fond of saying right now, trust the process. Ah, that's right. Trust the process. So Derek, for the listener who's saying, okay, I get it. I'm in. I want to live a life of gratitude. I want to surround myself with the right people. I want to treat life as a gift that is not promised. What's an action item? What's something the listener can do in the next 24 to 48 hours to start moving towards their goals? One is to make sure that you identify that goal. And as I said before, plot your path to that goal. Then the next thing you got to do is once you know where you're going is to just put the head down and do the work. If you don't know how to get to that goal, find those people, reach out to them that can help you get there and take their advice. Always look to give the best of everything you can. But if there are setbacks, remember that it's just part of the process of the learning process and that there are, it's, it's okay, it's natural that you're going to try something differently and you're going to take it from a different perspective. Derek, for the listener who wants to find you, follow you, learn more from you, because this was absolutely enlightening and inspiring, where do we find you, follow you, and learn more about what you're doing? Sure. Uh, you can go to recycledmanspeaks.com to find out about me, 
find out about what I'm doing. You can also find Recycled Man Speaks on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. Excellent. And for the listener, of course, I will have all of that in the action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And Derek, I love, uh, I love the phrase and the term uh, recycled man. That's, uh, that's perfect. <laughs> Thanks. And everything you just talked about there, especially at the end, is a perfect way to segue into the way I wrap up every episode. And I'm going to do that here in just a second. But Derek, let me thank you first, because this was enlightening, inspiring, and really gives us a lot to go on. So thank you so much for making time to come on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jim. And for the listener, as always, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success. Mm -hmm.